Hi, good afternoon. Um, it's Kathy Diamond back again for the Eleanor London Coat St. Luke Public Library. Those of you who can see me, hello. I wish I could see you, but I can't. And those of you who are listening on the phone line, um, hi, it's me again. Month, a beautiful month of June. And um, I hope that all of you have been keeping well. I know that COVID is still very much around. Uh, people who've managed to avoid it until now seemingly are getting it, but hopefully not very seriously. And I hope, I hope that, you know, this is slowly, slowly, although it's really taking a long time, um, working its way into the regular viruses. So the library is still not holding our monthly book club in person. I hope that in a couple of months, um, we will go back to that. Maybe those of you who are not comfortable can listen in at home, but I would really like to have some interaction and see you because it's a bit weird talking, looking at myself and talking to myself. But anyways, as I always say, it's better than better than not having it. So the book that I would like to speak to you about this afternoon is a book by a woman who's become one of my favorite authors, and I look forward to any new books that she writes. Her name is Rachel Joyce. She's a British writer, and the book that I'm going to be talking about now is called Miss Benson's Beetle. And when I, it's funny because when I read the title and I saw the cover, there are many different covers of this book because I looked online and some of them are so beautiful. I guess it depends on which edition, um, whether it's a British publication or an American or a Canadian, because I, I had taken out a couple of copies of the book over the couple of years since I read it and they had different covers. And that's just here from one library in Montreal. But in any case, when I read the title, Miss Benson's Beetle, I, I don't know why what first came to mind was that it was a book about a woman called Miss Benson who had a Volkswagen Beetle. But no, it's not about a Volkswagen, it's not about a car, although there is one great car chase scene in the book. But the Beetle is the is an insect, referring to an insect, this Beetle. So the book was published two years ago, 2020. And it's um, Rachel Joyce. I think that many of you may be familiar with her. She is the author of a number of best-selling, international bestsellers, as they're called. So they say she's a British writer, but her books have sold, been translated into a number of other languages than English and um, have sold very well. So she wrote, she's written a book called The Music Shop, which you may have read. But her first novel, which I, I was saying, I was thinking to myself, yes, we did it at our book club. How many years ago? And this is kind of scary how time goes on because the, the book is, was called The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry, which I'm sure many of you have read. And if you haven't, I would recommend reading it. That was her first novel, 2012. So it's 10 years since the publication of Harold Fry. And as well, she wrote another book called Perfect, which we also talked about in our, in our book club, and The Love Song of Miss Queenie Hennessy. So The Love Song of Miss Queenie Hennessy is the sequel to The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry. Perfect is a completely different book, different subject. She also wrote another book called The Music Shop. 
as well as a digital short story called A Faraway Smell of Lemon. She has written a short story collection entitled A Snow Garden and Other Stories. Her books have been translated into 36 languages, so a lot of languages, and two are in development for film. And she said in an interview that she's she's been working on, um, on the film adaptations of her books. The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry, the, for her first novel, was shortlisted for the Commonwealth Book Prize and longlisted for the Man Booker Prize, which is probably the most prestigious English language uh, literature prize. She's been, she's won a number of other awards as well in Great Britain, and she has written interestingly, and she still continues to write screenplays, I'm uh, sorry, not screenplays, but um, radio plays for BBC Radio 4. And this seems to be one of the, uh, one of the things that she enjoys most doing, she says, is writing for radio, because it's a completely different kind of writing than when you're writing a book, because you're, it's, it's all sound. And she said, I love sound, and I, I really enjoy writing radio scripts. So she has written more than 30 original afternoon plays and adaptations of the classics for BBC Radio, including all of the Bronte novels. She didn't start out as a writer because, as, it, as I say, her first novel was Harold Fry, but then there were all the other radio scripts. She actually is an actress to her first career. She had a long career as an actress, performing leading roles in the Royal Shakespeare Company and other theater groups in England. She lives with her family. She has four children who are now grown. Um, when I first read about her 10 years ago, her children were young, aged 10 to 17. So figure now they're 10 years later than that. And she lives in Gloucestershire in England with her, well, whoever's not, who's ever still at home of her family and kids. But if you listen to interviews with her, if you watch her, go look on YouTube if you haven't done so already. She speaks so beautifully. She has this beautiful British accent. And you can see there's trained actress in her. She enunciates, she speaks very clearly, and she looks like an absolutely delightful person. And I find her books really wonderful as well. So how does she begin this latest novel? She has two epigrams. Epigrams are those little bits that authors put at the beginning of the book, which they feel, um, I think, I'll sum up or give a clue or have something very much to do with the essence of their book. So she has two short epigrams at the beginning of her book. One of them is a quote from Sophocles, the Greek philosopher. And what does this say? Seek and you will find. What is unsought will go undetected. And that really, those of you who've read the book, or if you haven't, this really, it, it's very apropos. You could see why she picked this. The second quote by someone called Pima Chodron, who I'm not familiar with, is as follows. Somehow, in the process of trying to deny the things that things are always changing, we lose our sense of sacredness, of the sacredness of life. So again, somehow in the process of trying to deny 
that things are always changing. We lose our sense of the sacredness of life. We tend to forget that we are part of the natural scheme of things. So these are the two quotes. So this is seek and you shall find, because if you don't look for things, what is not looked for will go undetected. That's Sophocles. And the other one is that we shouldn't, we should not deny the things in life are always changing and that we are part of the natural scheme of things. And these two, you read them before you read the book because they're put at the, at the beginning. But then after you've read the book, you go back and you read them and you say, ah, yes, perfect. And before that is a map of New Caledonia. New Caledonia, which as the author describes, is a rolling pin shaped island in the Pacific. And if you look on a map and look for New Caledonia, there's this enormous expanse of the beautiful Pacific Ocean and in there's this skinny little tiny island, tiny, a little little speck of New Caledonia. So that's where the majority of this story takes place. Miss Benson's Beetle. And she, so she says that when she was asked that, how would you describe your writing to someone who's just beginning to read you? And she said, I'm very vague if anybody asks me that. I say I write books and I change the subject. She also, okay, that's her writing because she also writes other stuff, radio scripts. But in terms of how I would describe my books, well, that's even harder. What could I say? There are not many car chases in my books, for example, although there is one in Miss Benson's Beetle. They are character-led stories, her books, often about the kind of people who have been left a little on the sidelines or have been misjudged. I want to take the ordinary and find the place where it takes on a more universal meaning. Those small moments that are transformed into something luminous. And when she's asked to give a quick synopsis of what Miss Benson's Beetle, her latest book, is about. She says, Miss Benson's Beetle is about two women who leave a broken 1950s Britain and travel to the other side of the world in search of a golden beetle. That's why I said it wasn't the Volkswagen Beetle that I thought when I was when I didn't know what the book was about. It's a golden beetle, as in a bug that may or may not exist. These two women are completely ill-matched and completely ill-prepared for all that lies ahead. And yet they are drawn into an adventure that exceeds every expectation. It is a woman's adventure story that celebrates friendship. And that's how she sums up the book. And those of you who've read it will say, yes, that definitely is, um, is a good summary of the book. She says, when she's asked, what inspired you to write the book? She says, well, I've always expressed myself through writing, although I guess she's also through acting, but she says through writing is how I make sense of the world and how I find my place in it. 
In terms of inspiration, it always comes from what I see around me, and often it takes me by surprise. Increasingly, though, I feel that writing is about listening to the story and really trying to understand, I guess she's talking as a writer, when the story comes to her, and not, she says, as to impose my own ego on the story. So that's when she was asked that, that's what she says. Um, and so the story, just to give you an idea, the year is 1950. And although World War II is over, London and many other major cities are still, remember the war is only over for five, I've just been over for five years in 1950. London was bombed in the Blitz. And so the city is still, you know, piles and piles of rubble. Um, and many other major British cities and European cities as well, of course, are still rationing goods and materials and trying to rebuild their shattered communities. Husbands, sons, and brothers have died. And the women of the world are starting to come into their own after having taken up major roles in both war efforts. Because this is after, and the, and the book begins, the book begins with a wonderful opening. If I should read you the opening bit is set when, when the main character, when Marjorie Benson, she's the Miss Benson of, this, of the title of the book, 1914, when Marjorie was 10 years old. Let me, I'll just read you a couple of the first paragraphs. This is how the book opens. It says, the first chapter is called The Golden Beetle of New Caledonia, 1914. When Marjorie was 10, she fell in love with a beetle. That's the opening sentence. It was a bright summer's day and all the windows of the rectory were open. She had an idea about sailing her wooden animals across the floor, two by two, but the set had belonged to her brothers once and most of them were either colored in or broken. Some were even missing altogether. She was wondering if, under the circumstances, you could pair a three-legged camel and a bird with spots when her father came out of his study. Do you have a moment, old girl, he said. There's something I want to show you. So she put down the camel and the bird and she followed him. She would have stood on her head if he had asked. Her father went to his desk. He sat there nodding and smiling. She could tell he didn't have a proper reason for calling her. He just wanted her to be with him for a while. Since her four brothers had left for war, he often called her. Or she'd find him loitering at the foot of the stairs, searching for something without seeming to know what it was. His eyes were the kindest in the world and the bald top of his head gave him a naked look. I think I have something that might interest you, old girl, he said. Nothing much, but maybe you, you, maybe you will like it. At this point, he would usually produce something he'd found in the garden, but instead he opened a book called, the, called Incredible Creatures. It looked important, like the Bible or an encyclopedia, and there was a general smell of old things, but that could well have been him. 
Marjorie stood at his side, trying hard not to fidget. And she's looking, and there are illustrations of all kinds of strange creatures, odd creatures, kind of fantastic creatures. Well, well, look, her father kept saying. Well, now, goodness me, look at this, look at this, Marjorie, look at this. And she asks, are they real? They might be, her father answers. Are they in a zoo? Oh, no, dear heart. If these creatures live, they have not been found. There are people who believe they exist, but they haven't caught them yet, so they can't prove it. She had no idea what he was talking about. Remember, at this point, Marjorie is 10 years old in this opening short chapter. Until that moment, she had assumed everything in the world was already found. It had never occurred to her that things might happen in reverse, that you could see a picture of something in a book that you could as good as imagine it and then go off and look for it. So her father shows her all these creatures. She said, asks him, do you think they're real? And her father says to her, I have begun to feel comforted by the thought of all we do not know, which is nearly everything. With that upside down speck of wisdom, he turned another page. Ah, he pointed at a speck, a beetle. Well, how nothing this was, how small and ordinary. She couldn't see what it was doing in a book of incredible creatures, never mind whether it was not yet found. It was the sort of thing that she would tread on and not notice. And he tells her about the beetle and how remarkable it was. And beetles have two pairs of wings. And she says, it looks a bit plain, she said. Marjorie had heard her aunts called her plain. Not her brothers, though. They were as handsome as horses. Anyways, they look at this, and he shows her this picture of this tiny little thing that was not plain. It was, and she looks even closer, and it was golden. Everything about it was golden. Its thorax, its abdomen, even its tiny legs were gold. The golden beetle of New Caledonia, said her father. Imagine how it would be to be able to find this one and bring it home. And then there's a ring at the doorbell. Her father goes to answer the door. There's something, a piece of news, and something happens, and the first chapter ends. And then it, the book continues, England, early September, 1950. But that opening chapter is absolutely wonderful. In fact, one of the, one of the reviewers said, that is the best opening chapter that I have read in a long time. And it's in that chapter that we are introduced to Margaret Benson, or Margie, Marjorie Benson, age 10. So her father, who is this keen entomologist, shows her a picture book of imaginary creatures. On her first glimpse of the golden beetle of New Caledonia, Marjorie gets the bug, pun intended, and decides then and there that one day she will find this mythological creature and bring it home to England. So that's the quest, Miss Benson's Beetle. So as I said, the opening chapter is 1914, and then action, fast forward, the rest of the book is 1950 until a final chapter at the end, 1983. But the majority of the book takes place between 1950 and 1951, just that year. Marjorie, when we meet her, because figure if she's 10 years old in 1914, so those many years later, she's in her mid-40s, 
single, had never been married, um, is very unhappily employed as a cooking teacher, a cookery teacher, as they said in, in, in British. And she's very miserable. She hates what she's doing, but this is what has happened to her. She's a single woman. Um, after the war, she was living with her mother. Her parents have died and she's living with ants and the ants die. And she gets this job. She doesn't know really what to, she works as an entomologist, we find out for a bit. Um, and that ends for a certain reason. I don't want to give away too, this is the hard part. I don't want to give away too much for those of you who haven't read the book because the story is so wonderful and it's so wonderful to find out all the things that we do along the way. But she's employed very unhappily as this teacher, high school and the girls are cruel and torment her. She's middle-aged, she's single, she's um, plain, as we had said at the beginning, even at age 10, her, she'd heard her aunts refer to her as plain. And she, um, but it's 1950 and what's she going to do with herself? She has to support herself. She's very poor. Britain is bleak and gray and everything is rationed still. And, um, and she's teaching. And then there's this very funny scene, you know, those of you who read the book or those of you who haven't, when you read it, that she's teaching and a note. One day there is a note. This is the final straw on, in her teaching career when she discovers that the girls in her class are circulating a very cruel caricature, a drawing of her. And something just snaps. She quits her job. She makes this dramatic exit from school. And it's, I mean, it's a, it's a comedy. I hope they make this into a movie. It could be so visually so beautiful and so funny but she so she quits her job um exiting the school with as much academic paraphernalia as she can carry and she finally decides that she is going to find this beetle she plans an expedition to find this beetle and where is this beetle to be found in a place called new caledonia new caledonia she looks it up this is 1950 so she gets all these guidebooks and, and tries to find as much information as she can about this place. Um, remember, there's no internet, there's no TV, there's no nothing at this point. But she's decided whatever snapped inside her that day with the cru this cruel drawing that's being passed around makes her decide, okay, I'm gonna do this, which my father had told me about all those years earlier. So, but she needs an assistant, she decides. So she puts an ad and she advertises to, to find an assistant. So she posts this ad in a local newspaper um, for an assistant to accompany her on this 10,000 mile journey to New Caledonia. So who answers the, the ad? Three normal people, supposedly normal, and one interesting woman named Enid Pretty, it's a funny last name, um, who cannot spell at all. So she ignores the this final candidate, Enid Pretty, who's, who has awful spelling. She interviews the other applicants and she begins her own paperwork and packing for the trip. But unfortunately for our Miss Benson, the candidates are all a bit off, especially one of them, and he's going to become part of the story, Mr. Mundit, who is a who is a a former prisoner of war who seems to suffer from PTSD. He definitely has a terrible, well, you would have called it shell shock after the First World War, but after his, his post-traumatic um, experiences after having been a prisoner of war in Burma um, and been subjected to the cruelty of the Japanese, 
he he applies for the position of her assistant as well. Um, but she after us and, and she doesn't know who to pick the candidates who were the good candidates don't seem to be interested. Um, her preferred candidate drops out. And so in the end, and this, and this, this Mr. Munich, who really wants to be her assistant, she realizes quickly that there's something very, very off with this man. And so in the end, it's Enid Pretty, who can't spell, who is the most unlikely and inappropriate candidate, who she never really got around to meeting, she comes instead because by the time Marjorie has arranged for all her travel plans, it's too late. So we meet Enid, this small blonde bombshell, as she's described, in a bright pink traveling suit who arrives at the train station late with three enormous suitcases. She is about 20 years younger than Marjorie and clearly not cut out for the job. Nevertheless, she is the only one and she does not stop talking. Marjorie, Miss Benson, is as put off by her new assistant as she is also slightly intrigued. Who is this woman and why would she ever want to travel the world for a beetle? Miss Benson is really too afraid to ask, but it becomes clear as the story goes on that the two women have their own reasons for wanting to leave the country. And so as these two extremely unlikely companions begin the five week journey to Australia, they have to go to Australia first, they land in Brisbane, and remember this is by ship, the travel, and then they have to make their way over to New Caledonia. So they strike up this, this, this unlikely friendship and they set sail. Um, much against Marjorie Benson's wishes, because this Enid Pretty is the candidate that she really never would have picked, but she can, beggars can't be choosers at this point, and off they go. But unbeknownst to them, one of Marjorie's rejected candidates, this former prisoner of war with alarming mental health issues called Mundick, this Mr. Mundick, he has also stowed away on the boat. And from here ensues a series of grand capers and obstacles which Enid and Marjorie must overcome to reach their goals. For starters, New Caledonia, as I said, you could look it up with this teeny weeny little speck of an island in the middle of the ocean, is a French controlled tropical island 750 miles from Australia's east coast. It is a world away physically and culturally from rainy, cool, organized England. Hmm. Marjorie and Enid must also battle problems which travel with them from London, most notably Enid's pregnancy and the fact that she is wanted for murder in England. And by this time, Miss Marjorie Benson, we, we realize she's also wanted for stealing because when she left school that day in her, in her kind of breakdown after this note gets passed around and she realizes she doesn't want to be here anymore and takes with her some things from the school where she was working, she's also wanted for theft by the police. So these two women are fugitives actually back in Britain, but off they've gone to the island of New Caledonia. And Mundick, the rejected candidate for assist, the assistant job, who is also following them, he continues to stalk them with some life-threatening circumstances. 
The novel becomes a terrific story of daring do and female solidarity. Not so far beneath the humor, however, lies a much more, shall we say, modern agenda of self-knowledge and empowerment. And this plays out most explicitly in Marjorie's growing awareness of her own abilities. When Enid, for example, and Enid becomes the most loyal friend, and these two women, you know, as you, they're polar opposites when you meet them. Marjorie is described, you know, she's heavy set, she has her sweater and her skirt and her set and her boots, and the whole story about the boots is funny, um, but and plain and never attractive, never been married, never seemingly have had a relationship with, with a man, although we find out something different towards the end, but, but not, a, not a happy relationship. And then you have Enid, this pretty little bombshell who you would think was extremely flaky and extremely like, completely like they physically, they look different, they sound different, they speak different, Enid can't spell, Marjorie is from a much more educated class. Um, but the friendship between these women is really one of the pillars of the story of the French of what a friendship between two women can be. When Enid, for example, builds Marjorie a study in their jungle base in this, this yeah, this, this hut in the jungle in New Caledonia where they live because they're going to fly. They have to go trekking into the north of the country to on their weekly treks to see if they can find this beetle. Um, Marjorie questions, why do I deserve such a treat to have a friend or somebody who really, really cares? She, Enid is the first one who cares about her. And then we find out towards the end of the book that Marjorie is, is the first person who's really cared for Enid. So it makes this very, very powerful and poignant. So there's, it's funny, there's humor. I mean, it's a really funny book. The author writes with such clever humor. But there's also sadness, there's also questioning, there's also these much more serious themes. And so when Marjorie questions Enid, why are you doing this for me? Um, she figures because maybe because she's wearing shorts like a man, so then she deserves a study if she looks like a man. And But then she quickly dismisses this thought, realizing that Enid made the effort because, as she says, Marjorie Benson talking, I am a woman who is ready for adventure. And this self-realization leads her to believe that everything she wanted was ahead and available so long as she was brave enough to claim it. This is her realization, Miss Marjorie Benson, which indeed turns out to be as such. Self-belief leads to self-actualization, the author seems to be telling us through her characters. Marjorie wins her longed-for career as an entomologist. She wins it successfully by the end of the story, but more importantly, on her own terms. Enid, in her turn, is similarly triumphant with her driving ambition, which was to become a mother. Just as Marjorie Benson has wanted to find that beetle, that golden beetle, and it's linked to when her father at the beginning, when she was 10 years old, showed her that book of possibly existing creatures, but some of them mythological and not, 
And Marjorie has wanted to find that beetle in a way as to make her father, who is no longer alive, closer to her. She adored her beloved, beloved father. That was her, that if she could find that beetle, then it would mean that she has done something for her father. Where And Enid, who turns out to be um, a wonderful character as well, both the women are wonderful characters, and has her one longing is to have a child. She had tried so many times and miscarried so many times that when she is finally successful, and that's you know the happy ending of the book, then she has fulfilled her ambitions. Of course, predictably, not everyone is happy for Marjorie and Enid's success because they are, you know, this whole. And so the book is also, I guess, on one level, a murder mystery because the two women, Enid is wanted in the death of her late husband. Um, Marjorie, not for murder, but let's say for stealing, which is much more minor. Um, and some of the characters they meet along the way, well, this Mundick, the rejected candidate with the severe mental health problems, and we find out that he was he was not okay even before his he was taken as a prisoner of war. Um, and there are other characters along the way who are not rooting for our two women, but we definitely are. And Joyce, the author, Rachel Joyce, makes it clear that fulfilling one's dreams can be much more than a merely selfish pursuit. In the last chapter, and there's a closing last chapter that takes place in 1983, Marjorie sends subsequent beetle discoveries to a woman, the only woman, and there's this one character who just appears very briefly in the last chapter, working in the entomology department at the UK's Natural History Museum, where Marjorie Benson had worked many years earlier before her teacher as a career. She had worked as an entomologist back then in the 19, I guess, 1920s or 1930s. Um, and then something happens, we find out, and she switched professions and was the teacher for a while until she went to New Caledonia. And, um, but in the end, like this is, 30 years after the 1950, which is the main time frame of the book when the two women set out on this search. This last final chapter is 1983, when our Marjorie is sending back subsequent beetle discoveries to this one woman, the only female entomologist working there in the Natural History Museum. And overlooked and overworked by her male colleagues, this woman, who she has a name, her name is Freya Jeffrey has, similarly to, Mar to Marjorie at the beginning, been complicit in stifling her own ambitions and is also slowly sliding into lonely obscurity. But when Marjorie sends her specimens and sends her a photograph, the young woman at the end is equally inspired. So the ending is a happy ending. There is this passing of the baton on from Marjorie and Enid to this young woman in 1983. And so the, the last sentence of the book is this young woman in 1983 is her realization that the real failure as a woman was not even to try. And this seems to be Joyce's message to her readers. When she was asked in another interview, why a beetle? How did you get this idea about a beetle? She says, 
I chose a tiny golden beetle because I knew nothing about them, which is a healthy place to start a new book. And also because they are so small, you could tread on them if you weren't looking. You could certainly miss them. We miss beetles all the time. An entomologist said to me, butterflies have got it easy. I first thought about the beetle though, when I heard a talk about cryptozoology. What's cryptozoology? Essentially, this is the search for animals whose existence had not, has not yet been proved. I was really inspired by that idea. And now you can see in the opening that I had read you of the book where Marjorie's father shows her this book of strange and exotic animals. And it's all about animals that could possibly exist, but they haven't been found yet. So the author says, this is where she got the idea for the book and why it's called Miss Benson's Beetle and the whole idea of the search of, for a beetle. I mean, obviously the themes are friendship and you know, women and their self-actualization um, and much more. But she said, this is where the author came from. She heard a, she heard a lecture on cryptozoology the source of search for animals whose existence has not yet been proved. It doesn't mean they don't exist. We just have not found them. And so she says, hmm. she thought, what would it take to find an animal that no one has found? It must take knowledge, imagination, and faith. It also must take endless supplies of courage because a lot of people are going to laugh at you, especially if like Miss Marjorie Benson, you are an introverted woman in 1950 who wears shoes with holes in them and you're an amateur collector. Nobody is going to take you seriously. And then she said, so, and then she's asked, but why New Caledonia? How did you find that, that setting for your story? She said, originally I planned to set the book in the UK, but I quickly abandoned that idea. I knew from the start that this was going to be a story. I was writing an adventure story for women. And it struck me that in order to find the true spirit of these women and to write with their energy, I was going to have to go on an adventure myself. So I was going to have to take away all the props that I had relied on until now. So I chose New Caledonia, which is, as you say, a biodiversity hotspot. And it happens to also be an island very few people have written about. So she said, I did endless research. I read travel books, studied maps, found letters, witness accounts, old diary and journal entries about the island. I even managed to track down pamphlets in issued to American GIs when they were posted there during the Second World War. She said, it's one thing tricky though, when you're an author, a writer, you can often get bogged down in your research. Um, so, or all, and you can also get stopped in your tracks by all the things that you don't know. So she says, my answer to all that is that you must not be afraid to use your imagination and make the leap for there. And she said, and my two characters, Marjorie Benson and her assistant, Enid Pretty, they're parts of me, two sides of me, the introvert and the extrovert. Because she says, the author, I'm, I'm really an introverted person. Although on the other hand, she's an actress. So there has to be an extroverted part. Um, but one thing and one final thing, I'll, I'll stop after this and if there are any questions or comments, she says, Miss Rachel Joyce says, early on in my writing, I found a photograph of two women, May Morris, the artist and social activist and her gardener and companion Mary Law. I loved this photo. It's the way they stand together that moves me. Mary in her breeches and tie and jacket standing squarely in front of the camera and beaming right at us while May stares a little off to the side. 
It's as though being together allows them to be the individuals they truly are. And this struck me as a very beautiful truth about my friendships with other women. There was something about the energy of Margaret and Enid that was like a spur to me as a writer. And it made me bold. And so she, and, and if you look, if you look up YouTube videos, um, there is one where she shows this picture of the two women that she drew inspiration for, for the characters. I mean, they're not exactly the same, but the two characters of Marjorie Benson and Enid Pretty in Miss Benson's Beetle. So it's a wonderful book. It's a, you know, it's, it's a, you could read it on one hand as a lighthearted romp and an adventure story, but it's really much more than that. There are some much deeper undertones. It's also to be pointed out, um, and she said, said in an interview, it's inspired by this generation of women. And I think Rachel Joyce, I, I would think she's in her 60s. She said, I grew up having older women around me who had lost, and, and I can sort of relate to this, grand, in the, of the grand, our grandmother's generation who had lost, um, who had lost men in the First World War, and then again in the Second World War, because what there were that, not many years difference between the First and Second World War, right? So she said, and it was that generation of women who had lost men and who were lonely and alone. And there, she said there were so many of them, as Rachel Joyce said, they were my teachers in school. And she said, and I, you know, the Marjorie Benson and her teaching experiences when the girls were cruel to her, she said, I can say from experience that we were not very nice to these older unmarried teachers who we had, who had given their lives to us to teach us. So she said, I really wanted to write about this as well as the friendship between women, but also how the women had suffered and had suffered so much loss because of war. So it's a, it's a wonderful story. It's an adventure. There's all kinds of, you know, there's even the car chase scene that she talks about, but ultimately it's a tribute to the possibilities of doing what, you know, if you follow your heart and, and, and to, to, take, to take action and to be brave in doing what you wanna do, but also in the beauty of friendship that women can have with each other and the strength that they can derive from such friendships. And just as a one little added piece of information, I found that when I was looking up things about this book. And Rachel Joyce, as I said, she's working on the film adaptation of Harold Fry, among other things. And she's also going to be coming out with the third part of the Harold Fry Queenie Hennessy trilogy. So it's going to be a trilogy. So we have another book in that to follow Queenie Hennessy, which to me is a wonderful thing to look forward to. Thank you very much. I'm hoping to speak to you again next month, probably not in person, but anyways, this way. And if there are any questions or comments, I'd be very happy to answer them. Thank you. Okay, let's give people a moment to put your questions in the chat. Or if you're feeling brave, you can unmute yourself. That would be nice. <laughs> we love to hear more voices. Yeah. <laughs> Um, for those of you who maybe didn't get the chance to, we did put out a survey asking whether or not people want to have um, the group meet in person for book reviews or whether you want to continue virtually. So I'm going to 
pop the link into the chat box if you haven't had the chance to do so. Hold on. While we wait for you to come up with questions. For those of you who are on the phone, um, you can call us and we will find a way to forward you the survey. I know that if you aren't very tech savvy, surveys are a little bit complicated. So I don't see any questions today. I think people are probably thinking about everything that was said. Okay. Uh, I think we might be done a bit early today, Kathy. Okay. Might be the opportunity to go and enjoy this beautiful day. Beautiful day, everyone enjoy. <laughs> Thank you so much. We'll see you again next week, uh, next month. Next month. On Thank you, everyone. Thank okay. you. Bye. Bye-bye.